What is going on, Solo fam? My name is John Solo. This is the Messed Up Origins podcast, and you chose a good time to tune in because we're a few weeks into our annual Spoopathon, that special time of year where we turn our focus to all things magical, mysterious, and otherwise unsettling. We're more than three weeks into October at this point, which means you've no doubt been exposed to all the classic Halloween tropes. The smell of rubber from costumes wafting through the air, excessive amounts of fake spider webs on your neighbor's trees, jack-o'-lanterns, of course, and goth girls invoking the goddess of witchcraft to make potions in the school bathroom. Wait, did you say goddess of witchcraft? Do you mean like a Greek goddess of witchcraft, or is she part of some modern-day Wiccan pantheon? A little of both, actually. Hecate, or Hecate if you prefer, was once the Greek goddess of witchcraft, but over the past few centuries, she's found a new home with modern-day pagans. They say special prayers to Hecate, conduct rituals in her honor, and even offer sacrifices to her. But contrary to popular belief and what's portrayed in pop culture, neither of these groups nor the goddess are inherently evil, dark, or devilish in nature. Despite what you may have heard on shows like American Horror Story and The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, where they invoke Hecate's name to use dark magic, or seen on shows like Charmed and even the Hercules animated series, based on the evidence we found in our ancient Greek sources, we have no reason to believe the goddess of witchcraft was a malevolent being. In reality, she was a highly respected and powerful goddess, so much so that even Zeus himself went out of his way to keep her happy and one of his allies. In this episode, I'm going to break down the true mythology behind Hecate as well as explore some of the reasons why her portrayals in the modern day are so far off. Spoiler alert, it's all the Christians' fault. Now, brace yourself for the messed up origins of Hecate. Chapter 1. The Goddess of Witchcraft so in order to understand how Hecate's image has evolved into this villainous, antagonistic witch that appears in stories like Macbeth, we have to dive deep into our ancient Greek sources. And I'm happy to say that even though she's not an Olympian, the poet still wrote about her a decent amount. That's not to say we won't still be left with a billion questions after this or that those poets don't contradict each other because they do, but we at least have enough information to get a general sense of what she was like and how the Greeks perceived her. Now, according to most poets from back then, specifically Ovid and Hesiod, Hecate's father was a destructive titan called Perseus, and her mother was a lady titan named Asteria. She was associated with the stars and nighttime divinations like dreams and astrology. Hecate appears to have mostly taken after her mother, as her domains were considered magic, witchcraft, the night, the moon, ghosts, necromancy, and crossroads. That last one might seem a bit odd, but Hecate was said to live among ghosts and spirits, and crossroads have always been a magical place in folklore and myth that symbolized where two realms meet, like the underworld and overworld. It was actually a common belief among Grecians that at nighttime, Hecate would use her torches to guide spirits across mortal lands, with her arrival announced by the howling of dogs. Unlike Hades, though, her living among the dead was a choice. When the Olympians took over and the sons of Cronus divvied up the territories, Zeus knew that the all-powerful Hecate had to be paid the proper respects. After all, she was a titaness and still chose to support the Olympians in the war for control. Not only did Zeus refuse to reassign any of Hecate's domains to his fellow Olympians, he also gave her a share of the underworld, the ocean, and even the heavens above. She didn't have control over them, mind you, but she was honored and respected within them. 
As a result, it was completely up to her where she wanted to reside, but as the goddess of necromancy and a companion of Persephone, she chose to spend a lot of time with the dead folks. When it comes to Hecate's physical portrayal, that depends on the time period, location, and what medium she's represented in. Her earliest depictions show her wearing a gown, carrying her iconic two torches, sometimes sporting a headdress, and often accompanied by a black she-dog, an animal that's sacred to her. It's actually these depictions that have caused scholars to identify Hecate with Artemis, the goddess of the hunt, as she was often portrayed in a similar way. Also, Artemis's twin brother Apollo's nickname was the masculine form of Hecate, Hecatos, which means far shooter. Later portrayals of Hecate are a bit more unique though. They show her with three faces, three heads, or three bodies and holding torches, keys, serpents, or daggers. Statues in this form were often seen near entrances to temples, houses, and crossroads with each face looking down a different path. Now this association with crossroads and guiding the dead has led some to believe there's a connection between Hecate and Hermes, who presided over travelers, also had shrines located at crossroads, though his looked a bit different, and also escorted the spirits of the dead to the underworld. This connection usually manifests itself in the form of a romantic relationship, but the writers who claim the two were lovers, like Pausanias, weren't even born until several centuries after the Greek Empire collapsed. Because of that, I'm much more inclined to believe the earlier writings of Apollonius that describe her as a maiden. The only problem with that is that Apollonius also says Hecate and the sea god Phorcys had a child together named Scylla. No, we can't even get these poets to not contradict themselves, let alone each other. Honestly though, when you consider the fact that scholars who study these texts firsthand estimate that we've only recovered 1% of ancient Greece's written works, you've gotta consider us lucky that we even have as blurry of a picture as we do. Chapter two, the cult of Hecate. Considering how powerful of a deity Hecate is, remember, even Zeus was afraid to piss her off, and that she's the goddess of witchcraft, it's almost natural to assume that whatever rituals were conducted in her honor got pretty wild. The only problem is we're never gonna know for sure. See, in the days of ancient Greece, Hecate was an associate goddess of the Eleusinian Mysteries, a cult dedicated to the goddess of the harvest Demeter and her daughter Persephone, the queen of the dead, and they were all about secrecy. As far as we know, no one in the Mysteries ever wrote down the specifics of what their rituals involved. Some writers allude to the sacred ceremony's existence, but it's almost like they were afraid of going into detail. Check out this passage found in the Argonautica written by our friend Apollonius. The Argonauts made fast their stern cables on the Paphlagonian coast at the mouth of the river Halys. Medea had told them to land there and propitiate Hecate with a sacrifice. But with what ritual she prepared the offering, no one must hear, nor must I let myself be tempted to describe it. My lips are sealed by awe. Yeah, whatever the ceremonies were that took place at Eleusis, they were the pinnacle of what was considered sacred. Maybe one day I'll do a video discussing some theories that experts have about them, but for those who wanna learn more right now, I highly recommend checking out the Immortality Key. I'm currently in the middle of it, and it's killing me that I can't just word vomit everything I've learned so far. What I can say about the mysteries is there appears to have been a theme of death being transported to the realm of the divine and rebirth, possibly fueled by psychedelics, and considering that Hecate was associated with ghosts in the underworld, it makes sense that she'd also be associated with this rebirth ritual. Anyway, worship to Hecate was not just carried out in groups. Individuals also made small shrines of the triple goddess to place outside their houses and ward off dark magic. 
There were also multiple accounts of dogs, and I'm sad to say even puppies being sacrificed to her on the morning of new moons. Not everyone who prayed to Hecate was looking for protection though. And he see it's Theogony, which pays more respect to her than any other resource we have. He says, whenever any one of men on earth offers rich sacrifices and prays for favor according to custom, he calls upon Hecate. Great honor comes full easily to him whose prayers the goddess receives favorably and she bestows wealth upon him. And when men arm themselves for the battle that destroys men, then the goddess is at hand to give victory and grant glory readily to whom she will. Good is she also when men contend at the games for there too the goddess is with them and profits them. And he who by might and strength gets the victory wins the rich prize easily with joy and brings glory to his parents. Hesiod also goes on to say that Hecate had influence over how lucrative a day of fishing can be, that she can increase and decrease herds of livestock at will, and that she's a nurse to the young. It seems to me that, like Zeus, she has a certain degree of influence over luck and the fates. And while there doesn't seem to be a reason given for how she decides who to bless, if you're one of them, you're in for a good time. Chapter 3. The Myths even though all the Olympians admired and respected Hecate, it appears that she didn't involve herself much with their drama. While she is referenced in a few famous myths and makes passing appearances in others, like one poet's account of the Gigantomachy where she uses her torches to beat down the giant Clytius, terrible name, the only story she plays more than a very minor role in is the kidnapping of Persephone. For those who've never heard it, I'd highly recommend you check out the video where I break it down in detail and cover all the variants, but here's the basics of what happened. Essentially, Hades gets permission from Zeus to marry his daughter Persephone, whom Hades fell in love with the moment he saw her. But Zeus knew that Persephone's mother, Demeter, was the overprotective type and would never allow such a relationship to happen. So if Hades wanted her, he was gonna have to be clever about it. In my favorite version of the story, Zeus gave Persephone, who was a nature goddess, the responsibility of painting all the flowers on earth. And while she was working away diligently with her friends Artemis and Athena hanging out nearby, the ground in front of her began to split. Suddenly, the air was filled with sulfur along with a cloud of dirt and debris. And when the dust cleared, Persephone was standing face to face with the Lord of the Underworld. Not one to waste time, only a second passed before Hades grabbed hold of Persephone and disappeared into the fissure that he came from. And while the young goddess tried to call for help, it was too late by the time her friends arrived. It wasn't long before Persephone's mother, Demeter, noticed that her daughter was missing. What concerned her even more, though, was that no one appeared to know anything about her disappearance or really seemed to care. All by herself, the goddess of the harvest searched across the continent for her missing daughter, nine days in total. And on the 10th, Hecate finally appeared to her and said that she heard Persephone cry out for help, but didn't see what happened. Then she offered to lend Demeter a helping hand. Using Hecate's torches to light the way, they continued the search for Persephone until one of them had the bright idea to ask Helios the sun god, because he could see everything from his vantage point in the sky. And he tells Demeter that it was her own brothers, Zeus and Hades, that set up the kidnapping. After hearing this, Demeter is even more distraught. She sends the planet into a brutal winter that kills all the crops and countless innocent mortals. And because less mortals means less sacrifices, Zeus had to get involved before things got out of hand. Hades was immediately ordered to return Persephone to the surface. Before he did though, he tricked her into eating some pomegranate seeds. And now that she'd had food in the underworld, the law stated she could never leave. So the gods had to reach a compromise, a fancy word that here means a deal where no one wins. 
Hades. Persephone would be forced to live in the underworld and rule at Hades' side for about half the year, and the other half she could spend on the surface. Now, how does Hecate play into all this? Well, she got pretty invested in Demeter and Persephone's well-being during that ordeal, so she became a companion of the young goddesses to make sure she didn't get into any more trouble. And while she was powerless to overrule the divine laws stating that Persephone had to stay in Hades, she could escort her on her yearly journey down there. And since the underworld was partly Hecate's domain too, she could continue watching over Persephone and ensure that she was treated well. Persephone isn't the only young lass that Hecate took it upon herself to care for though. Her two sacred animals, the black she-dog and polecat, have pretty incredible but tragic origin stories. According to some legends, the black she-dog that accompanies Hecate was once a woman named Hecuba. She was the wife of King Priam and the queen of Troy. Hecuba lost a lot when Troy was conquered, but the most important thing she lost may have been her young son, Polydorus, who was left in the care of her son-in-law, King Polymester. When Polymester found out the Greeks conquered the Trojans, he killed young Polydorus, threw his body in the ocean, and took the inheritance the prince had brought with him. What Polymester didn't realize was that he was in a Greek myth, and the bodies thrown in the ocean always find a way of washing up on whatever shore their closest loved one happens to be on. And when Hecuba found her son's body on the beach, she swore to get revenge. Now there's at least five versions of this myth, so I'll have to cover it in more detail in a dedicated episode, but in my favorite telling, Hecuba arranges to have a meeting with King Polymester, and he accepts because it's in his territory and around his guards. What could possibly go wrong? Well, that question was answered pretty quickly. Not long after seeing the king's smug face, Hecuba jumps on him, digs her thumbs into his eyes, and gouges them out. Meanwhile, the surviving Trojan women ambushed his sons and killed them. So now he's blind and childless, all at the hands of slave women. How embarrassing for the king. But when the Thracian people witness Hecuba attack their king, they don't just stand idly by. They start throwing sticks and rocks at her. And in her wild fury, the former queen starts barking at them. Confused because her intention was to scream and not to bark, she looks down at her hands to see them replaced by two furry black paws and realizes she's been transformed into a dog. It's certainly not ideal, but she does manage to escape her attackers because of this new form. Then partly out of pity and partly because she knows the queen has nowhere else to go, Hecate adopts her as a companion. Now her other sacred animal, the polecat, you can also call the sex weasel. And I'm not telling you why until the end of the story, but the reason for it might be the most insane old-timey belief I've ever heard. This myth focuses on a mortal named Galinthius. She was the midwife to Alcmene, Heracles' mother. When Alcmene was in labor, ready to birth Heracles at a moment's notice, Hera got involved and told the goddess of childbirth, Alethea, and the fates to cross their legs and intertwine their fingers to prevent her from having the baby. You see, Zeus said that the next descendant of Perseus, born in Greece, was going to be the next high king, and Hera didn't want that for his bastard son. Also, she wanted to cause Alcmene an incredible amount of pain, and there's really no better way of doing that than not letting her give birth. Alcmene suffered through these labor pains for four straight days, and Galinthius, the midwife, was worried that she would literally go insane from the pain, so she intervened in the only way she could think of. Because at this point, Galinthius knew that whatever was preventing Alcmene from giving birth, it wasn't of this world. It couldn't be 
Only the gods could be this cruel. So she ran outside, announced very loudly to no one in particular that a son had been born, and this was so shocking for Alethea and the fates to hear that they reflexively stood up in disbelief. This five second window before they realized what just happened was all Alcmene needed to push out her twin sons, Heracles and Iphicles, and for a few seconds more, Galinthius was overjoyed at their victory. Unfortunately though, the gods don't like to be made fools of. As punishment for her daring deceive the gods, the fates took away Galinthius's womanly parts and turned her into a weasel, because weasels reproduce in the most shameful way. Females are impregnated through the ear and give birth, I can't even say it. Females are impregnated through the ear and give birth out of their mouths. At least, that's what people thought back then. Don't ask me why, though there is a theory that it came from weasels carrying their newborns in their mouths and folks back then just completely misinterpreting what they saw. Anyway, similar to what she did with Hecuba, Hecate invited the transfigured Galentheus to join her as a companion. And from that point onward, weasels were considered her sacred animal. Chapter four, the destruction of Hecate. So based on what I've told you about Hecate so far, would you say that she sounds like an evil goddess? Probably not, right? It sounds like she doesn't cause drama for the Olympians. She volunteered to help Demeter find Persephone. She rescued not one, but two women from cruel and unusual punishment. So why is it that every time she's been referenced in a movie or show or play over the past several centuries, she's either the villain or assisting someone evil when they call upon her to use magic? Well, the guy who unsubscribed because I made a joke about worshiping Satan wouldn't appreciate this, but it's kind of 100% the Christian church's fault. They were the ones who destroyed every artifact of pagan religion that they could, demonized the use of witchcraft, and got it into everybody's head that using magic or experimenting with the different forms of consciousness that it could provide was an evil thing to do. But in reality, the church authorities just wanted any and all connections with the divine to be overseen by the church, because that meant they would be society's only way to satiate their spirit spiritual needs, and that gave them a lot of power over an extremely spiritual culture, more than any of us can comprehend. Now, in the interest of being fair, I should clarify that many of the Greco-mythological figures who invoked Hecate's name while using magic weren't exactly the most honorable characters. For example, Circe, the goddess of sorcery, called upon Hecate when she turned all of Odysseus's men into pigs, and that was a shitty thing for her to do. But then there's Medea, Circe's niece, a priestess of Hecate, and an incredibly helpful companion on Jason's hunt for the Golden Fleece. She was said to be a very talented sorceress, taught by Hecate herself. She could put out raging fires, stop rivers from flowing, and stop stars from falling, none of which sound like evil magic to me. Granted, Medea did brew up a poison and used it to kill Princess Glauke and her father, but Glauke stole Medea's husband of 10 years, so I think that one falls in a gray area. And before you mention her murdering her own children by Jason to get revenge on him, there's debate on whether or not that was even intentional. My point is, it's very rare for any character in mythology to be all good or all bad. That's what makes them so interesting interesting, and why them invoking Hecate doesn't mean that the goddess or even witchcraft is inherently evil or born from Satan himself, even if a guy in a fancy robe says so. Thank you all for tuning in to the Messed Up Origins podcast. We're posting episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So don't forget to sacrifice the five-star and follow buttons to the algorithm gods to make sure they bless your feed with more mythological and folklore content. If you have any thoughts on this episode you'd like to share, like if you really enjoyed it or are dying to correct my pronunciation of something, hit me up under the Messed Up Origins handles on Twitter and Instagram. And to those who are craving more Messed Up Origins, feel free to check out other episodes 
episodes of the podcast or look up my YouTube channel called John Solo to experience the original episodes complete with visual aids and custom-made artwork. Until next time, Solo fam, my name is John Solo, and don't forget, John shot first.